0: Good morning, brothers and sisters. Good it's exciting to, to be gathered together again this day to worship our King and Lord. Please turn with me in your Bibles. We're going to be in Acts uh, chapter 12 today, um, specifically in verses 20 through 25. And as, we're, you know, as we've been in Acts chapter 12, I think one of the things that stands out is just how striking how quickly things can change in just a short amount of time. You know, if we think back just to the start of Acts chapter 12, James has been killed by Herod with a sword. Herod's emboldened by the cheers of the crowd, and then he's he's arrested Peter and plans to do the same thing with him. Things don't look great for the church. And yet, by the end of the chapter, things look much differently. John Stott puts it this way. He says, the chapter opens with James dead, Peter in prison, and Herod triumphing. It closes with Herod dead, Peter free, and the word of God triumphing. Such is the power of God to overthrow hostile human plans and establish his own in their place. Amen. Amen. And so, brothers and sisters, as we, as we study this text, as we behold our God, we're going to see that no matter the opposition, the church will be effective and the church will endure because our God is for us. And as we look specifically at the, the verses as they're laid out for us today, we're going to see in verses 20 through 23 that God opposes the proud as he humbles Herod unto death. And God multiplies His Word as it continues to spread and continues to bear fruit as it goes out in verses 24 through 25. So He poses the proud and He multiplies His Word. So Father, please lead us as we study Your Word. Please encourage us by it and help us to understand it in truth. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to begin reading in verse 18 just to give us a little bit of a flow for the text. But again, our verses are verses 20 through 25 this morning. Hear the word of the Lord, brothers and sisters. It says this. Now, when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the centuries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he, Herod, went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now, Herod, who was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and Having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed. His last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their, their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. So, as we, as we begin in the first part of this chapter, we see that God opposes the proud, specifically talking about Herod and the ways in which he's bringing uh, persecution against God's church. And in verse 19, we see that Herod has opted for a change of scenery after being embarrassed by Peter's escape from prison. He leaves Judea after having the guards executed, and he heads down to Caesarea to no doubt uh, you know, go and try to have a change, but also he's going no doubt in a foul mood. In fact, it says that he's angry here. He's directing his fury and his bluster at the people of Tyre and Sidon. It doesn't really tell us why that's the case but he's angry at them as he, as he goes down here. And Tyre and Sidon were cities of the area of Phoenician. And these were, were, um, you know, these were port cities. They didn't have very large agricultural centers. And so they were dependent upon Herod and you know, his land for food. They would trade with him or, or pay money for food, but they were dependent upon Herod for their own ability to survive. And I'm frankly confident that Herod liked the situation this way that they had to come to him, that they had to trust in him, that they had to see him as powerful, that they had to grovel to him. So again, we don't know why Herod was angry, but it tells us in the text that these two cities, the people of Tyre and Sidon, come, and they come together and they speak with Blastus, who was the king's chamberlain. This was somebody that had access to the king. He would have had power of some sense, but more than anything, he had the king's ear. And so they go and they ask Blastus if, they would, if he would go before them to the king and share their desires to help broker peace so they can have food that they need. Herod, again, must have felt smug and important as he had these people coming to him. And he hears their request. But what Herod doesn't realize is that the circumstances of his own death are knocking at the door. The trap for Herod is set. You see, there's a people here so much in need of Herod's help that they're willing to grovel and swoon and give him praise and honor and adoration for anything that he says. And you have Herod who wants this sort of praise more than anything else. And so as the two are brought together, we recognize that this cannot end well for Herod and as we, as we look in the text, as we, as we read from verses 20 down through 23, we see Luke doesn't spend any time detailing the, the speech of Herod for us. He doesn't tell us what Herod says. Because really, Herod's words here don't frankly matter, nor need to be preserved. In fact, what Herod doesn't say is more important than what he does say here Luke's account instead focuses on how God responds to the pride of Herod. You see, Herod wants his speech to be a spectacle. He wants to be seen as great. He wants to be thought of as a a God. And so he's setting up this opportunity where they're going to have to come to him. He's going to be seated on his throne wearing his garments, and they're going to see how great he is and praise his name. And Josephus, who's a Jewish historian, not a Christian, who was a contemporary at this time with Luke, wrote about Herod and his garments and and really this whole scene where Herod, you know, invites them to come in and ultimately of his death as well. But here's the scene. Herod puts on his garments. He has this robe that's of spun silver. And Josephus describes it this way. He says, "...he put on a garment made wholly of silver and of a contexture truly wonderful." And came into the theater early in the morning, at which time the silver of his garment, being illuminated by the fresh reflection of the sun's rays upon it, shone out in a surprising and glorious way. So this is what he does. He says, all right, I'm going to set up a time when they have to come to me. And I'm going to choose the time where the sun is coming into this room, and I'm going to put on this garment that's glowing. So when they see me, they're going to see me as a god. They're going to think that I'm magnificent. And sure enough, the people, when they come, they listen to him and they say, the voice of a God and not of a man. And Herod, he doesn't stop their cheers. In his heart, he wants to be worshiped. He doesn't turn it away, he welcomes it. He feasts on it. Even Josephus, who wasn't a Christian, agrees that it was wrong for Herod to, blast, to, to to not correct the blasphemy of these crowds. And if you remember back to, to chapter 10, a similar thing happens with Peter, where Peter goes to Cornelius' house, and Cornelius bows down to worship him. Do you remember what Peter says? He says, get up. I'm just a man like you are. Don't worship me. But he also says, I'm going to share the gospel with you and your family so that you would know who is the true king, who is the one who has made a way for you to be saved, who should you worship. And he shares the good news of the gospel with Cornelius and his family so that they would rightly praise God and not man. But Herod doesn't do this. Herod gets exactly what he wants. And what he wants is lethal to him. How many times has, has God protected us from getting something that we think we really want but would be lethal for us, where he protects us either spiritually or physically from those things? Such a kindness of the Lord many times to not give us what we want. And yet here, he allows Herod to receive what he wants unto death because he wants what's God's alone even with the crowd's declaration that there is a new God in town there's still only one true God of Caesarea and one true God of the rest of the world and it surely isn't Herod as verse 23 makes clear so Luke tells us that because Herod does not give God the glory God immediately strikes him down See, this is the second time that God uses an angel in this passage in chapter 12. The angel comes and and encourages the church by what he does, but by the deliverance that he gives with Peter. He encourages the church also by killing of Herod. We see that the angel um, is an answer to their prayers and that both times the angel brings humility to Herod. Luke uses the same word for struck here in this part of the passage as he does when the angel struck Peter. In essence, he's saying something like this. The angel struck Peter to wake him up from sleep and the angel struck Herod to put him to sleep permanently. So we gotta ask the question. Why is it that God acts so quickly here? Why is it he strikes him down so fast? As soon as this happens, he immediately strikes him by the angel. Why is, the, what, why is this the timing of it? Why is this the occasion for Herod's death? And the first reason is made very clear by Luke in verse 23. Herod does not give God the glory that he should. In Isaiah 42, 8, God says, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. And yet Herod has set himself up in opposition to God. He's a pretender, acting like someone and something that he's not. And his foolishness leads him to become food for worms. And as you read of the quick justice that God pours out on Herod, I imagine it probably reminds you of the story of Ananias and Sapphira from chapter 5, right? Of the quickness with which God struck them dead as well as they are um, lying to the Holy Spirit. This husband and wife who plot together to lie to God, he kills them both on the same day. Showing the seriousness with which we must approach God. God uproots Ananias and Sapphira before their shoots can grow down deep and their corruption, corruption spread to others. He protects the church from their self centeredness. And he causes great fear to come upon the whole church and upon who, all who heard such things. Chapter 5, verse 11. Just think about yourself in that situation. How would you feel if you were staying there and Ananias and Sapphira right there and God strikes them dead? Or how would you fear if you heard the speech that Herod gave and you see him? see him struck by the angel. You see him doubled over. I think very quickly it would elicit fear in us. right A fear of the Lord like we see in verse 11 of chapter 5. But but this kind of fear that God wants to elicit in us is, is not a fear that's meant to lead us away from God. But it's meant to lead us toward God. To the one who can actually save us. To the one who really deserves honor and glory and worship. It's meant to drive us to him, not away. This type of fear keeps us from focusing on ourselves, and instead leads us to look to the one who is actually glorious, to the one who truly is worthy of worship, to the one who's actually a king, who rules forever. And so the first reason God strikes so quickly is because he will not share his glory with another. But it's also a measure of protection For his church, God desires to protect his church. Remember, Herod is persecuting the church violently and God puts it into it quickly. God doesn't allow Herod to be emboldened by the crowd's flattery to continue his reign of terror against the church. He stopped dead in his tracks and there's nothing, there's nothing that Herod can do about it. God graciously protects his church from attacks from within, like Ananias and Sapphira and their self-centeredness, but also attacks from without, like Herod and his persecution of them. In both places, God acts quickly to protect the church. And lastly, the last reason I believe that God acts so quickly here is because he's answering the prayers of the church. We've already talked about this just last week. The church is praying. They're praying for Peter as as he's in prison, but they're also praying, I'm sure, You know, that God would do rightly, you know, and deliver them from Herod's hand. As we think about our own lives, as we we think about what what does it look like for us to pray for our leaders? Especially, what does it it look like for us to pray for leaders who who don't know and worship God, who who don't rule according to God's standards of conduct and righteousness? How should we pray for, for leaders like this? How is it that we should be praying you know, for a deliverance in some sense too? Well, the first way that we should pray is we should pray for their salvation. Pray that God would save them. That he would transform them. That they would behold the glory and wonder of Jesus. And in that transformation, they would then rule and lead rightly. You know, that God would change their hearts from the inside. What would it look like for our politicians today to love Jesus first and then rule out of that? Praise the Lord that would be true. And I'm thankful there are Christians who do serve in that capacity. But we pray for their salvation. Paul also commends us, though, in 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2, that we should pray for these rulers, that they would rule righteously in such a way that we would be able to live peaceful, quiet, godly, and dignified lives. So we pray that they would be, you know, ruling in ways that are good, and they would allow us to operate as the church, that they would leave us at peace, and that we would be able to serve the Lord and and minister to others. But I think it's also right to pray as David prays that God would deliver us from our enemies and that God would use the pride of his enemies against them. Psalm 59, one through two, we hear David say this. He says, deliver me from my enemies, oh my God. Protect me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from those who work evil and save me from bloodthirsty men. And in verse 12, he continues, he says, For the sin of their mouths, the word of their lips, let them be trapped in their pride. And that clearly is what happens to Herod here. He is trapped in his pride. His pride leads him to desire this worship and and he doesn't return it to God. And he's he's killed for it. And as we pray this way, as we're praying, you know, whether it's for their salvation or, or that God would bring deliverance, we're not to tell God exactly how he is to deliver us. But instead, we're to come with him, to him with humility, asking him to act justly and rightly, to do what God thinks is best. Frankly, sometimes God chooses not to rescue a person from physical harm. James is an example here where he dies. But James, in death, received the reward for his faith. So he is delivered, in some sense, ultimately, into eternal life. So God does deliver him, just not necessarily in the way that they might have hoped for it to happen. But also, sometimes this deliverance looks like being able to escape from the persecution and escape from their wrath. You see that with Paul escaping from Damascus, going out you know, the wall in a basket. And Peter being freed from prison. And sometimes, like in Herod's case, death puts a quick end to the enemies of the church. So God brings deliverance through that means. So why would God strike Herod down in the way that he does? If you look at the text, maybe it doesn't stand out to you right, right away that you would even ask that question. It sounds like the angel immediately struck And he he dies. But Luke's language here is really interesting. He says that Herod was eaten by worms and then breathed his last. Usually you say it the other way, right? Like you die and are eaten by worms. But Luke, the physician, is giving us a little bit of medical insight here to describe actually what happened to Herod. And it's pretty disgusting He's killed by a worm. You see this once proud king who would not bow his knee to God? God uses a worm to bow him over in agony so that he would take a knee. This is according to Josephus accounts. Again, not a Christian, but telling us, you know, what happens here. Most likely, as Luke alludes to, it's caused by an infection and an accumulation of worms in his gut and other unmentionable places that were consuming him from the inside out. You see, the judgment of God that falls on Herod illustrates and it highlights the folly of Herod's pride. The rot in his gut is a vivid picture of the rot that's going on in his own soul as he's longing for the praise that only God desires or deserves. And we shouldn't miss the irony. He's mortally wounded on the very day when he's thought to be at the pinnacle of his greatness. As he's standing there in his his robes arrayed in whatever glory he thinks he has, God strikes him down by the angel. And immediately, he is mortally wounded. He's shown to be no God, but a man like any other. He wants glory, and instead he's afflicted with a disease that was shameful, gross, and humiliating. There's accounts of it where there was a stench about Herod in those five days that he was still alive until he succumbed to his sickness. He's not defeated by a rival army in battle. He doesn't have his glorious gear on as he's riding off to defeat some enemy. No, he's defeated by a humble, like a he's humbled by a wriggling tiny worm. And here death echoes God's words spoken through Isaiah to the Babylonian king in Isaiah 14. Or you hear this your pomp is brought down to Sheol, the sound of your harps, maggots are laid as a bed beneath you, and worms are your covers. Those who see you will stare at you and ponder over you. Is this the man? who made the earth tremble, who shook the kingdoms as they see Herod bowed over in agony. Is this the man that we were afraid of? Who we thought was unstoppable? That guy? God brings him down low. And according to the reports, as I said, he agonized for five days. And though God's judgment here is severe, it's also tinged with mercy. Herod had time to repent of his sin, to confess his folly, to confess his wickedness, to say, no, I should not have received that that praise. Instead, I should have pointed to the God who is righteous and who is worthy of it. But alas, there's there's no record that Herod did that. There's There's no account of him turning from his sin and casting himself on Christ, whom he was persecuting. Herod is prideful to the very end and his pride leads to his fall. Brothers and sisters, you see that the death of Herod highlights the weakness of all mankind. That every one of us goes to the same end. Each one of us will die. So it really matters As you think about how we live, as we think about how we would come to God, are we coming to him in pride saying that we are God? Or do we come to him humbly saying I'm not and I need salvation that only you can provide? You see, kings and rulers, people high and people low are all under this curse. And we should think soberly. And seriously, in our seats right now, how is it that I'm approaching the Lord? By what way do I come? Do I come on my own merits, my own strength, my own goodness, my own righteousness? That's the way to death. But if we come by Christ, coming in the the righteousness that He secured and He gives to us by faith, repentance of our sins, We come freely and joyfully knowing that he has accepted us. He forgives us. And we are made clean. There's good news for us. Christ Jesus died for our sins, including the sin of pride and self-centeredness. That very thing that Herod struggles with Christ died so that people could be free of it. We hear in Colossians 2, 13 and 14, and you who were dead in your trespasses, And the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, with Jesus, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Praise the Lord. For those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus and have repented of our sins, Christ Jesus has freed us from the penalty of death that we deserve. And he gives us eternal life. You see, here's the reality that I believe Luke is highlighting for us. More than just for the need to not be prideful, though that's really important. He's showing the church that we will overcome because God fights for us. Because God provides salvation and life for us. He is on our side. He doesn't sit by passively, but the father acts by sending his son so that the greatest tyrants, far greater than Herod, that were, that were arrayed against us, that were aligned against us, would be defeated, namely those greatest tyrants being sin and death and Satan and they're utterly brought to ruin. He sends his holy spirit to empower us even now to be effective and to be empowered for the work that of the ministry that he calls us to do. So though we who trust in Christ were once in bondage, bondage to sin and death, and there was nothing that we could do to free ourselves from it, thanks be to God who gives us the victory. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. If our God is for us, who can be against us? The answer is no one. So he, he defeats sin and death, but he also defeats Satan. One of my favorite verses in Luther's hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, goes like this. It says, The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can't endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fail him. The defeat of Satan is sure, because he has already been defeated at the cross. We can endure his rage, for his doom is sure. And God, in his timing, will subject Satan to judgment. God's final and forever punishment on him will show Satan's pride for the foolishness that it is. And so brothers and sisters, as we think about this reality, we recognize that we will be effective. We will be protected because our God is for us. We're We're not promised that only good things will happen to us if we trust in the Lord. We've got numerous examples in the scriptures where we see that suffering is a part of the Christian life. You look at Paul, but look at Jesus, the righteous son of God. Does it mean that everything will go in the way that we think and that suffering won't be a part of it? James died at the beginning of this chapter, but we do know that the Lord is always with us and that his promises are true and he will deliver us. And the proof is in Jesus, in his death and his resurrection. And so we see in our passage that God opposes the proud. He brings them low to protect and to bring judgment. But we also see God multiplies his word, he, he causes his word to continue to grow and, and multiply. You know, as we, as, we, as we think about this passage, there are things that God will be doing that we don't necessarily know. We, we don't have the eyes to see, you know, what he's doing in that moment. You know, we might be in really difficult circumstances thinking, man, this is so hard. It's hard to see that God is doing great things all over the place in, in all sorts of situations. You know, we, we typically have this kind of zoomed in perspective where we wish we could see the full picture. We could see what God is, is wanting to do. Sometimes we do get a chance to see that as we look back on our lives. But Sometimes it's really hard to see that in the moment. You know, as you're standing before Herod, you're like, I don't know what good is coming about this. Um, I've got an example on the screen, and I don't mean it to be funny as I'm talking about this. It sounds serious, but I'm going to use it on the screen anyway. So as you look at the picture on the screen, as you look at the different colors and things that are on there, it's probably hard to determine what that is, right? Like, do you have any idea what this is as you look at it? Anybody want to take a guess? It's, a, it's a, something you'll probably be familiar with once you see it. It's a, it's a building. Anybody got a guess? Okay. Let me, uh, let me zoom in a little bit more so you can see a little bit more clearly, right? Actually, it's, I guess zooming out. You've got more detail here. You couldn't see it before. Anybody tell what it is now? Okay. Good guess. All right. Let's, let's zoom out one more time. All right. So it's the Coliseum. Right. And this happened first service too. Like I probably should have had one more slide in there that was less dramatic. (laughs) Yeah. So it goes from nothing to Coliseum. So sometimes that's how it feels like though, when we're in our life, right? Like I have no idea what God's doing. And then we have great clarity. Most of the time it's probably more subtle than that. But, uh, you know, when it's, when it's right in front of you, it can be really difficult to, to, to just to see it, to know, you know, God, I, I trust you, but what are you, what are you working out? And I'm sure it was that case with, with Herod in this section. The Christians are being persecuted, but they see him killed, and they're greatly encouraged, I'm sure, of that, that God is, has delivered them. But then we hear beautiful, glorious words from 24 and 25, but the word of God Increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. This is such an encouraging end to such a harrowing chapter of the Bible. We see from, from verse 23 to verse 24 that the church's situation has changed dramatically. What started as a nightmare has now turned into a great cause for confidence. I mean, you just imagine how encouraged the church would be to see God moving in a way that he delivered Peter and he overthrew Herod. And and he's also doing tremendous other works. imagine they were, you know, as surprised and encouraged also when they saw that Paul, who was a persecutor of the church named Saul, as he was, as he was, hating the church and fighting against the church, they were probably fearful of him. And then God does a miraculous work in saving him. You know, there's a a transition where that which seemed really difficult is now a cause for confidence. For God has worked and moved. The Lord has removed the tyrant and he has emboldened his church. And so as as God is working here, we recognize he's working in and through as as he's making his word increase and he's multiplying, uh, you know, the word going out. He's working in the lives of regular believers to cause the advancement of this gospel throughout all of the known world. You see, God has done what he said he would do. He has fulfilled the law and the prophets in Jesus. He's bringing about his new covenant promises in us, in believers, By faith, we are actually forgiven of our sins. We are filled with the Holy Spirit. The same spirit that emboldened Peter to preach in Acts chapter 2. The same spirit that that filled Stephen as he proclaimed the goodness of Christ before he was martyred. The same spirit that encouraged Philip to speak to the Ethiopian eunuch. The same spirit that empowers Paul to preach so boldly indwells. Us. The one who made them effective ministers of the gospel makes us effective ministers of the gospel. So brothers and sisters, we are in possession of the greatest message that the world has ever known. We have a message that brings life and transformation to all who hear it as, as Christ is working in them as he, as he saves But do we we think of it that way a lot of times? Do we we treat it as such a marvelous message? See, we don't just proclaim a truth, but we rightly proclaim the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. And we have the Spirit working in us both to empower us and, and lead us, give us words to say, but also that same Spirit is working to draw people to Himself. So the Spirit's working in us, and the Spirit is drawing people to himself, helping us to be effective as we rightly proclaim the word of life. God is bringing this about in us and in others. And so as you think about the example I used earlier, is, you know, sometimes it's hard to see what God is doing. Is there a place in your life where you're struggling to see what God is doing and how he could be using it for good? You know, what is, the, what is the posture of your heart toward God in that situation? Here's, here's where I think one of the most encouraging truths for us that we can see in this passage is we, we won't fail as a church if we're doing the very things that God calls us to do because he is the one who makes us effective The word of God increases and multiplies because the Lord is always working. It increases and multiplies because there's always another heart to be reached, another neighbor to share with, another friend to be encouraged with the truth. Lord, would you help us to see and to take these opportunities that are available to us? Would you help us to to see and, and, and seize these opportunities? But also, would you help us to act and believe, Lord? When we don't see what you're doing, when we don't see the opportunity, but we desire to trust you. You see, Jesus makes it plain in the Great Commission and in the theme verse of the book of Acts that we are instruments that God uses to accomplish his plan and his purpose for saving the lost. There's, there's no other alternative. Then faithful Christians sharing our faith and making disciples of others. This is God's plan. And we see this in Colossians 1, 28 and 29, where Paul says, Him we proclaim, Jesus, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all of His energy that He powerfully works within me. So, We proclaim him. We are to teach and and encourage and and to give wisdom and and desire to present everyone mature in Christ. This is what he says. He says, I struggle hard to this end. I work hard for this. But it's through the energy and his power that he is powerfully working in me that I can do this. So we work hard and God is the one who actually enables us to be faithful to what he calls us to do. We are responsible to declare and to disciple and to demonstrate, but we do this by using the gifts that the Holy Spirit gives to us. He is the one who brings the fruit. He is the one who ultimately is powerfully working in us and through us and in the hearts of others, and he is the, is the reason why the word of God increased and multiplied. Brothers and sisters, we have great cause, many reasons for optimism, for hope, And for confidence. No matter what cultural moments we might face in the upcoming months and days and years. There's no worldly philosophy. There's no governmental power. There's no dictator that can stop the word of God from increasing and multiplying. We see in chapters 11 and 12 that the church is even able to thrive when leaders move on. And when leaders are killed. Because the church isn't just dependent on one pastor, not just one leader. That we are one body with many members, each gifted to serve Christ, who is the head of the church in unique and important ways. You see, the gospel spreads from one believer to another in our jobs and in our homes and in our schools, and especially in our churches by the power of the Spirit. And even in dark and difficult times we can be confident that the Lord is working in us and through us to bring light and hope to a needy world. Do you believe that? You see, brothers and sisters, the words of verse 24 are as true right now as they were when Luke wrote them. The word of God is increasing and multiplying right now all over the world. And we can celebrate this news because there is no one and there is nothing that can stop the Lord from building his church. And as we look at verse 25, the very end, we see this is is a springboard pointing to the rest of the book of Acts. Even as Herod is ravaging the church at the very same time that they maybe didn't know this was happening, Saul and Barnabas and, and Mark are serving Christ in Jerusalem. And they're getting ready to take a journey, to take the gospel to the furthest reaches of the known world. Countless churches are going to be planted. We're going to see that. Countless lives change because God is working through the proclamation of the gospel and through the power of the Spirit to save sinners. So brothers and sisters, we we don't always know what the future holds like immediately. We know the promises that God has, but we don't know how that's going to work out always. Always. But we do know that our King, Jesus, is going to return. That he is ruling and reigning even now. And he will reign forever. No matter the opposition, whatever it is or whoever it is, we who trust in Christ will be effective and endure for he is with us. In our struggles and in our joys from both now into eternity, The Lord is working for our good and his glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, thank you that you you work in such a way that you defend your church. You defeat opposition. You cause us to be effective and endure because you are for us. Lord, lead us to respond in faith. Lead us to respond in ways that are saying we trust you, would you continue to lead us and strengthen us, Father? Lord, would you help us as a church, as River Oaks, to be effective and faithful? Would you, would you help us to endure whatever comes against the church? and Help us to be joyful in the midst of that as we cling to Jesus, our Savior. Thank you, Lord. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.